KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, June 25th. Renters evicted despite the moratorium. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. At least 16 cases of the Delta variant of COVID-19 have been confirmed in San Diego County. Dr. Abisola Olulade at Sharpree Steely says the variant remains a concern because infection rates are high for the Delta variant even among vaccinated people. And the Delta variant has a new mutation called Delta Plus. The virus is going to continue to mutate and continue to change and it's doing it very efficiently and rapidly, which is very, very concerning. And that beta variant, for example, has been found to be the cause of more infections in the Seychelles, which has been one of the highest, uh, the most vaccinated nations. Political leaders from across San Diego County are calling for an end to travel restrictions at the border. They say the restrictions are hurting businesses that rely on cross-border traffic. Right now, only so-called essential employees are allowed to cross. Here's Supervisor Nora Vargas. As of today, 198 businesses have closed their doors forever due to these restrictions. And so, and it's estimated that between March 20th and March 2021, retail sales were $200 million, which is a 72% loss for the region. The San Diego County Environmental Health Department closed the Tijuana Slow shoreline on Thursday due to sewage runoff from Mexico. They're urging everyone to stay away from the water. The closure includes all beaches from the international border to the south end of Seacoast Drive in Imperial Beach. They'll stay closed until water testing meets state health standards for use. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. As soon as this fall, the San Diego County eviction moratorium may come to an end, and some San Diego renters who struggled to make payments during the pandemic may face eviction. Race and equity reporter Christina Kim introduces us to one man who's already lost his home. And I feel bad for my kids. I feel that I had let my kids down as a man, being able to support them and keep a roof on uh, over their head. Gabriel Guzman still remembers the fear he felt when he was evicted from his home in Chula Vista last December. He's worried about the impact it's having on his children. And even my youngest daughter, my three-year-old, would always ask when we were going home. She's like, I'd go home. And she would cry. Eviction moratoriums were supposed to keep people housed during the pandemic. But Guzman missed paying rent for a few months, and his landlord didn't renew his lease. Gilberto Vera is a senior attorney at the Legal Aid Society of San Diego. He says Guzman should never have been evicted. In a normal situation, that's not something that a tenant could be evicted under the state protections. It shouldn't have happened, but Guzman's experience is not unique. 
Even with the moratorium, landlords were technically able to evict tenants if they moved into the property themselves, sold the property, or wanted to withdraw the property from the rental market altogether. In in February, there probably had been about almost a thousand sheriff lockouts since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, with protections set to expire in the coming months and rental relief money only just beginning to trickle out, advocates and city officials say there will be more evictions. Ginger Hitsky is a local landlord. She says that even if all the rental assistance is fully dispersed, she expects a major turnover in the rental market due to surging housing prices. In some cases, landlords are incentivizing tenants to leave. You give someone cash and you ask for their keys. Like you incentivize them to leave. If you can increase rents so that in the next 12 months you could make an additional $4,000, It's worth it to you to give someone $2,500 or $3,000. San Diego is particularly vulnerable to evictions because it doesn't have an established housing rights culture, according to Grace Martinez, director of ACE San Diego, a tenants' rights organization. If you go to L.A., a tenant receives a notice and they will think, where do I need, you know, how do I fight this? In San Diego, when a tenant receives a notice, they're thinking, I'm going to, where am I going to find a place to live? Martina says San Diego needs to create a culture where people know their rights. A big part of that is having access to legal help. But according to the left-leaning Center for American Progress, nationwide, only 10% of tenants have legal representation in court cases, compared to 90% of landlords. Vera says without legal help, tenants can find themselves on the street fast. Eviction cases are one of the fastest moving lawsuits through the court systems. So a tenant can can, you know, without, if they don't respond quickly and meaningfully, they could be evicted within two months from when the landlord filed the eviction. Earlier this month, the San Diego Board of Supervisors approved a draft plan that would allocate $15 million of federal money to provide legal services and counseling for tenants. The motion passes unanimously with all supervisors being present and voting on. And there could be another silver lining on the horizon for both tenants and landlords. Governor Newsom recently released a plan to pay all back rent. Vera of Legal Aid says without that type of help, people will be pushed into a cycle of housing insecurity. Uh, because then they're, they're in a situation where not only are they being displaced, but they're also saddled with these, this mountain of debt that they might not be able ever to recover, which impacts their ability to be able to rent in the future, especially in a city like San Diego or a county like San Diego, where housing is a competitive commodity. Despite all of these programs, Uthman, the Chula Vista tenant, is still uncertain about what the future holds once all the protections are gone. I understand what people are going through. They want to uh, get back to, to normal life, but uh, we're going to pay the price. He found a new place to live and is looking for work. But even now, he's worried he'll be evicted again. That was KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser contributed to this story. A 12-year-old in City Heights is raising awareness about poor drinking water quality in local schools. KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler spoke with the incoming 7th grader about why he spent the pandemic focusing on this public health issue. Sully Jenkins remembers when his elementary school began handing out bottled water after it was determined the tap water was no longer safe to drink. So like for the longest time we had to drink from water bottles and we couldn't drink, like half the year we just couldn't even drink from the fountains just because it was really unsafe, the amount of lead. So when it came time to do group projects this year, 
Jenkins looked forward to looking into the issue of drinking water. And when he looked closely, he didn't like what he saw. Specifically, how common lead is in school drinking water. I was surprised at first, but I realized as I searched, some other places had some had the same problem, and I realized my other school, uh, it, it was the same problem. So over time, after like not that long, I was like, you know, this 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 isn't good, but th this is normal. So Jenkins created a YouTube video yeah, and a Change.org petition to raise awareness of what's happening with drinking water in low-income communities and the danger First that contaminants like lead present. Here's how it could affect children. It can cause brain damage, nervous system damage, stunted growth, stunted development, hearing and speech problems, and learning and mental problems. Here are signs of lead poisoning. The signs are pain, muscle weakness, pins and needles, nausea, abdominal pain, and vomiting. Jenkins has already shown the video to the San Diego City Council and has taken his research to the streets, tagging up flyers across the neighborhood to raise awareness. As I was putting those up, like I went out by myself on my skates and stuff and just put these all over the neighborhood in different areas, like on college. He says the solution is in replacing the infrastructure surrounding schools to get rid of corroding pipes and the lack of filtration. We need to, different plumbing materials like corrode contain a lot of lead in them, and the, the, those would go in pipes. But the main reason that some of my other students actually talked about this is pipes are, there's a lot of old pipes who have rusted, or they had like the soldering has rusted and that's polluting it with lead. And finally, there's also lead paint. Jenkins said he wants to continue his activism and research in the coming years, as he continues to push for cleaner water in City Heights. And that reporting from KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler. Coming up, the school board approves a plan that will integrate anti-racism and ethnic studies education into its curriculum. Plus, a fact check on claims by Governor Gavin Newsom's recall election TV ads. All of that's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Earlier this week, the San Diego Unified School Board unanimously approved a plan that will integrate anti-racism and ethnic studies education into its curriculum. Before the vote, there was a protest of roughly two dozen people who were opposed to the integration, with some equating the new curriculum to critical race theory. It all comes at a time of heightened racial awareness in San Diego, when many are thinking about how racism should be talked about in the classroom. This, especially after several race incidents at local high schools. San Diego Unified School Board President Richard Barrera spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman about the new curriculum. Here's that interview. So it's becoming increasingly common to see people conflate elements of multicultural education initiatives with critical race theory. What will this new ethnic studies and anti-racism training cover? And why do you think some in the community are equating it with critical race theory? Well, you know, the most important thing that we're doing to move forward, Jade, is, you know, we are absolutely committed as a district that the 
barriers that people have faced for generations as a result of racism that we want to equip our young people to be able to move beyond those barriers and not simply pass down the same problems that we inherited as, as, as prior generations. And in order to equip young people to combat racism, we need to have very honest and deep conversations in our courses about our history as a country, our history as communities, why we're at the place that we're at now, and motivate our young people to believe that they can actually make change and make things better going forward. And so, you know, ethnic studies, for instance, is really about young people learning that their own history is incredibly relevant and has produced so many positive contributions to our country that often have gone overlooked, but also that the situations that young people understand that they're living in day to day are the product, you know, a long history uh, that, you know, includes, you know, racism and racist practices all over our country and, and here in San Diego as well. So what we know, Jade, is that when we are able to speak honestly and directly and clearly with young people about our history, good and bad, young people get very engaged and very motivated and want to learn more and want to be on the front lines of making our uh, community better going forward. And what are you hearing from educators within San Diego Unified about the need for ethnic studies? Educators are strongly uh, in favor of ethnic studies. And, uh, you know, when we hold professional development for teachers uh, around ethnic studies, we get great response. You know, teachers want to uh, uh, learn uh, new ways of teaching, new ways of engaging uh, students, new content that they can share with their students. And the ethnic studies training that we've done over the past couple of years has been incredibly well received by our teachers because here's what our teachers know. When they're able to teach content that is relevant to students and teach it in a way that engages students, they see better attendance, they see more motivation uh, of young people to do assignments, better grades, better academic performance, but also a bigger sense on the part of young people that they can actually contribute to the world and be part of change going forward. And that's very motivating, as you can imagine, to teachers. And how have parents of children enrolled within San Diego Unified reacted to the approval of this uh, curriculum expansion? Parents have been overwhelmingly supportive. You know, three quarters of the students in our district are students of color. So we have parents, you know, that for decades <laughs> have been saying, look, we need uh, what our students learn to be more relevant uh, to their own lives and to our families' uh, histories. Um, but parents of, you know, white students have also been incredibly uh, supportive of ethnic studies because they don't want their students to go forward in a world where uh, racism affects everybody. You know, I think one of the uh, you know stories that certainly we can take out of this incident at Coronado High School is that had the students you know at Coronado High School been better equipped uh, to understand what was going on, you know when an adult started to pass out tortillas you know to throw at the other players, 
I think the students would have been in, in, a, in a better position to, you know, to say that's not who we are. That's not what we do. Unfortunately, now, you know, students at Coronado High School and Orange Glen High School are both having to, uh, you know, live in the aftermath of an incident that they wouldn't have wanted to be involved in. So, you know, that's a small example, but on a larger scale, I think, you know, what we're seeing from parents of all of our students is a sense that we don't want to continue to live in a world where racism is such a limiting factor to everybody. We want to equip our students with the ability to move forward and make a better world. But about that incident with the tortillas being thrown, do you think, do you really think that the students involved in that were that innocent and that they just didn't know what they were doing was racist? No, I think, I think they were acting in a, in, a, in a way that was racist. And that's the problem. You know, the, the problem is why are we putting young people in a position, whether they're victims of racism or perpetrators of racism, to be either? You know, why aren't we equipping people to move beyond that and, and move past, you know, the, uh, you know, the way of thinking and the way of acting that's been a burden on adults for generations and generations? So, yeah, of course, it was a racist act. But why aren't we educating our young people not to perpetrate racist acts? And why aren't we educating our young people uh, to confront racist acts when when they happen? You know, a constant refrain against this kind of teaching is that uh, children are too young to confront the horrors of racism or that doing so would some sow some sort of racial division. Um, What can you tell us about that? Young people understand that we already have racial division and that we already experience horrors and incredibly negative uh, you know, uh, situations as a result of racism. Young people live that every day. What they, wanted, what they wanna know is why are we in this situation? Why is the world the way that it is? And how can we make the world better? So you know, young people, they're not coming at this in a way that, um, that they're not already experiencing problems associated with racism. Uh, they want to not be trapped uh, in a situation where they are going to move forward in a world that hasn't addressed these problems and passed these problems on to future generations. And that was Richard Barrera, president of the San Diego Unified School Board. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. A TV ad supporting Governor Gavin Newsom in the recall election claims the governor is getting 65,000 homeless Californians into housing. Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols fact-checked that claim in this week's Can You Handle the Truth? He spoke with Cap Radio anchor Randall White. Chris, this ad was produced by a group called Stop the Republican Recall of Governor Newsom Committee. Tell us about that organization and the claim you fact-checked. Hey, Randall, this is a group formed by Democrats supporting Newsom. They've produced several TV ads that talk about how the governor is helping Californians, things like the state stimulus checks he's approved. But then they also make a claim about homelessness that caught our attention. Governor Gavin Newsom has California roaring back. What does that mean for you? Newsom is delivering money to your pocket, cleaning up our streets and getting 65,000 homeless Californians into housing. 65,000 homeless Californians into housing. That's a big number, but 
Is that really happening? Well, this claim really needs some context. Newsom has proposed spending a record $12 billion on homelessness. The big focus is on housing people, but that's a plan that stretches over the next three fiscal years. And the 65,000 figure is a goal, not something he's already accomplished or anywhere close to accomplishing. For some context, the end of the ad says Newsom is just getting started on this. But based on your reporting on homelessness, we also know that housing people who live on the street is not something that's easy to accomplish. That's right. It's not easy. And it's mainly the job of cities, counties and nonprofits to do this challenging, time consuming work, though state funding and technical assistance do help. Chris, you've covered the state's Project Room Key initiative. How successful has that been in housing people? That program has helped more than 40,000 homeless Californians. It, it provided them with temporary shelter in motels during the worst of the pandemic. But of those who have left the program, only about 30% have gone on to find permanent or temporary housing. So Newsom and local governments have a big challenge ahead to house that 65,000 number talked about in the campaign ad. Mm, Thank you, Chris. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom says he will keep the COVID-19 state of emergency declaration active even as California reopens. But does he have the power to do that? PolitiFact California contributor Sasha Hupka joins us to sort out the confusion. Sasha, what did you find? We saw claims online that Newsom can't extend the state of emergency and that it expired last year, but that's simply not true. In fact, he's already extended it several times. The laws which govern such things say very clearly a declaration is ended either by him or by concurrent resolution in the legislature. Concurrent resolution. What is that? It's used to resolve issues that pertain to both the Assembly and Senate. Legal experts say it's a check on Newsom's power because it means both he and a majority of the legislature have to agree. The declaration should continue. What does the ongoing state of emergency do? Why keep it? It allows officials to address the crisis, which could be important if cases spike again. It also unlocks funding California usually wouldn't have access to. So how did PolitiFact rate this claim? PolitiFact rated this claim false. That was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California contributor Sasha Hupka and reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Randall White. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.